Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greatest challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, in the 28 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, amid the economic crises, colored revolutions, wars, and separatist movements, there had been one constant, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. But on Tuesday evening, the president of Kazakhstan made a surprise announcement. He's stepping down. He's kept power by crushing dissent, jailing dissenters, hounding the opposition out of existence altogether. Kazakhstan has no legal, formal political opposition. That's a legacy he's bequeathing. We'll speak with Joanna Lillis, a journalist in Kazakhstan, about what comes next and the repercussions for Russia. And later, Galen Grandstaff is not the most high-profile American to be detained in Russia. But the story of his arrest for smuggling drugs might be the most spectacular. He's a former fireman from Kansas. He's been living in Russia since 2012. Uh, he barely speaks any Russian. He's obviously not involved with anything political at all. Uh, and he's, he's not high profile. There would seem to be no political capital in arresting him or charging him with anything or using him in any kind of political intrigue. We'll speak with Mark Bennett, a journalist based in Moscow, about what's next in Grandstaff's case since a judge ordered a retrial this week. First up... On Tuesday evening, Nursultan Nazarbayev, the 78-year-old president of Kazakhstan, announced on national television that he was stepping down. After holding the reins of power for 30 years, it was a decision that no one expected. Of post-Soviet leaders, Nazarbayev has proven to be one of the only to voluntarily step aside to oversee a smooth political transition of power. Joining us on the line is Joanna Lillis, a journalist in Kazakhstan who writes The Economist and author of the recently published book Dark Shadows, Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan. Joanna, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Hi. So it sounds like in the aftermath of this announcement on Tuesday that the consensus was that Nazarbayev wasn't actually giving up power. He's sticking around in some capacity. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right, um, Jonathan. I mean, um, uh, Nazarbayev uh, has for some years been uh, putting into into place uh, the kind of legal mechanisms that would allow him to do that, you know, constitutionally. Um, democratically, of course, is a different matter, but constitutionally, legally, um, Nazarbayev now has various powers um, under the law. For example, um, you know, many years ago, back in 2010, um, he was given the right to um, continue to control or at least influence uh Policymaking, domestic policy, foreign policy, after his uh, retirement. Um, and much more recently, last year, he was made lifetime chair of the Security Council, which, of course, gives him control over the security forces. Um, so, you know, he has a number of powers. And, and um, just on uh, the day after he resigned, um, he was made a lifetime senator as well. Um, so he has all these powers that will allow him to, to play this father of the nation type role and continue to exercise power behind the scenes. Um, so that's an interesting kind of development in our region where a president gives up power, um, theoretically, but continues to play such a, a major role as we expect Nazarbayev to do in the coming um, years, probably. We already have a sense that there are some figures stepping in to, to take over. Can you tell us a little bit about them, their background, where they come from and what they'll, they'll be doing? Yeah, so um, Kazakhstan, as of yesterday, has a new president, Kasim Jamat Tokayev. Um, 
his 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 previous position, he was the the chairman of the Senate, the Upper House of Parliament. Um, now, constitutionally, that is the position that takes power if uh, a sitting president stands down or becomes incapacitated. So, under the constitution, that's quite normal. The power would go to him, while. Um, you know, when Nazarbayev uh, gave up the reins. Um, uh, however, of course, uh, he's obviously been handpicked. I mean, if, if Nazarbayev hadn't wanted power to go to him in this interim period, at least, um, then he would have put someone else into that position or ensured that the Senate put someone else into that position. So I think um, Kasim Jamal Takayev has been has been chosen because he's, he's certainly something of a heavyweight politically, both domestically and also on the foreign, you know, on the on the international stage. Um, because Kasim Jamal Takayev was, was foreign minister of Kazakhstan twice for two fairly long stints. And he's also been deputy um, secretary general of, this, of the uh, United Nations. Um, so he's very well known internationally. He speaks, um, he, he, he was a career diplomat back in Soviet times. He had postings in China. He speaks Mandarin as well as, of course, Russian, as do all politicians in Kazakhstan. And, of course, English too and Kazakh. Um, but this means, you know, that he's well, well positioned to, to juggle um, geopolitical interests, Kazakhstan's big neighbours, China. He's very used to Russia, of course, too, um, and so he's a, he's a he's a you know he can punch his weight on the international stage, and um, you know domestically he you know the man in the street may not recognise him too well at the moment, although he's well known in political circles in Kazakhstan, um, but he's certainly you know he's he's a heavyweight. He's held important roles as prime minister as well as foreign minister, so that's who he is. Um, I mean he's uh, he's um, Nazarbayev talked about handing power to a new generation. Now, he's certainly younger than Nazarbayev. Nazarbayev's 78 and um, Tokayev is 65. Um, but, you know, he, he's in a way, he comes from the same political mold as Nazarbayev. He, he made his career back in Soviet times. He started his career in the 70s. Um, you know, of course, um, that, that's a while ago now. But this kind of political mold that came out of the Soviet Union, in a way, it's hard to call that a new generation. And Nazarbayev was at the helm for three decades. What legacy is he leaving behind? How has the country changed under his leadership? Um, well, certainly it's changed a great deal, um, especially given that, that, as you say, Nazarbayev came to power 30 years ago, 30 years ago this year, in fact, um, when Kazakhstan was still part of the Soviet Union and Nazarbayev became its first secretary, its Soviet the communist leader um, of Soviet Kazakhstan. Um, so, of course, I mean, um, at that time, it wasn't even an independent country. Nazarbayev claimed credit in his resignation speech for putting Kazakhstan on the map. Well, certainly he's done that to a degree. And that's part of his legacy, I think. Think. I mean, on the on let's say on the foreign policy front, Kazakhstan has been pretty successful. Um, it's been it's um, for for geographical and geopolitical reasons. It, it's it's always been in a bit of a difficult position. It's stuck um, here between two giant powerful neighbours, Russia and China, and then um, it's also um, you know got 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 the competing geopolitical interests of the West, say particularly the the United States to a lesser degree in the region, but still a player and. Nazarbayev is one of the few countries in the world that's, you know, managed to actually juggle those interests and remain on good terms um, to Kazakhstan's benefit for everyone. Um, so for with everyone, sorry. And so um, that's one of his 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 um, positive legacies. And there are other positive legacies too. Um, for example, um, you know, people in Kazakhstan, many people credit Nazarbayev uh, with bringing, you know, keeping things relatively stable in a region that's pretty volatile. 
Sahel, the wider Central Asian region, Afghanistan to the south. Um, and also they credit him with delivering, you know, growth. Growth has been reasonably steady since Kazakhstan came out of the depression of the 90s into sort of oil boom. The oil boom finished long ago, but um, still, you know, growth has been, he's managed to sustain growth. But on the downside, Nazarbayev himself has acknowledged recently um, in the face of, you know, increasing public disaffection that not everyone's benefited from that growth. Um, and we know that his own cronies have benefited more than his own people. Corruption remains rife. That's another part of his legacy. Um, and on the positive side as well, Kazakhstan is a multi-ethnic country. There are, there's over 100 ethnic groups here and he's managed to maintain, you know, fairly good relations. He's presided over a policy of non-discrimination that's managed to keep things fairly steady there. People rub along pretty well together, unlike in some other countries in this region. Um, on the negative side, we have to say that for all of Nazarbayev talking in his resignation speech about how he has made Kazakhstan into a democracy, um, the facts fly in the face of that. Um, Kazakhstan has never held a free and fair election under his tenure, indeed, in its modern history, um, in its history, <laughs> in fact. Um, and um, Nazarbayev has kept power not only by, you know, carrying out policies that have indeed benefited his people, he's also kept power by crushing dissent, jailing dissenters, hounding the opposition out of existence altogether. Kazakhstan has no legal, formal political opposition, no opposition parties. He, st he has stood in the last two elections without any proper opposition candidate opposing him. That's a legacy he's bequeathing. Um, he's bequeathing a muzzled media. He's bequeathing a country where dissenters get jailed. And so this is also part of his legacy. Um, this, uh, this uh, the, you know, a legacy of infringements of political and civil liberties and human rights abuses that remain rampant. We know that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, called the acting president of Kazakhstan, Takayev, yesterday. How do you think the Kremlin will be watching this transition? Very closely is the answer to that. Um, uh, we know that, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin and, and the administration in the Kremlin takes a very, very close interest in what is happening on its borders. And Kazakhstan shares a very long border with Russia um, and also in the post-Soviet uh, region generally, what they call the near abroad, um, what, what Putin considers his own backyard. Um, so I think what we it's safe to say that the, the Kremlin is watching events in Kazakhstan very, very closely. Um, I mean, from the Kremlin's point of view, from Vladimir Putin's point of view, what do they want out of this? Well, really, I guess they want the status quo. They want a country which remains allied to Russia. And Nazarbayev has made no secret for all of China's increasing influence in the Central Asian region region. Um, Nazarbayev has made no secret of his position, which is that Russia is Kazakhstan's closest ally. Um, having said that, you know, in recent years, relations have at times been strained, um, not least um, owing to uh, Russia's interventions, shall we say, in Ukraine from 2014. I mean, that's uh, those kind of the annexation of Crimea, the stoking of a separatist conflict in Ukraine, which of course the Kremlin denies, but, but uh, appears to be the case. Um, all of those things cannot fail to make other post-Soviet neighbours extremely wary. Um, but what the Kremlin is now looking for is, I, I, I'm guessing, um, is is to make sure that um, that its interests are not threatened in Kazakhstan. And also, I think it would be very wary if Kazakhstan were to set off onto a path to liberal democracy. It's not something that the Kremlin wants in, in this region. Um, but I think in the form of Tokayev, one of the reasons Tokayev has been selected as the new president 
president, is to reassure the Kremlin, among other foreign policy partners, that the status quo will be maintained. And I certainly don't think that under a leader like Tokayev, any kind of radical democratization is in the offing. So I think, um, and of course, as you say, uh, Vladimir Putin has already been on the phone. And I'm pretty sure that um, Tokayev is very well known to the leadership in the Kremlin because of his previous foreign policy experience. And I'm pretty sure that relations with Russia are going to continue along the same course, i.e. close, but Kazakhstan also wary of some elements of Russian foreign policy. Now, there's been some speculation, particularly among pundits on social media, that Nazarbayev's move may provide a kind of template for uh, succession for Russia and for, for Putin. What do you make of that of that argument? Yeah, that's um, an intriguing possibility, actually. Um, I mean, what Nazarbayev is trying to do hasn't, um, to my knowledge, I mean, hasn't really been tried or hasn't been tried in the post-Soviet region and probably not in, in too many countries in the world. Um, so, you know, Nazarbayev standing above the fray as a, a stepping down gracefully, standing above the fray as a father of the nation type figure, but continuing to heavily involve policy and to be heavily involved in the running of the state, which is what we expect. Now, um, as I say, it's an untested model. So I'm guessing that... Uh, Vladimir Putin is watching this closely from the Kremlin and wondering how that might work in Russia potentially. Um, I mean, this, of course, for Putin, it's interesting. Uh, Putin's much younger than Nazarbayev, over 10 years younger. Um, so at 66, um, Putin has to, has to, if he wants to keep power, he has to find ways of doing it. And we know that he already found an innovative way, the tandem with um, Dmitry Medvedev for many years. Um, but but um, I'm guessing that he may well be watching to see how this pans out and if it pans out successfully for Nazarbayev and for Kazakhstan, um, I don't see any reason why uh, he wouldn't maybe try and think of, of uh, adapting it or using it in some way for himself and for Russia. After all, autocratic leaders like um, Putin and Nazarbayev, they find it hard to give up power. So I'm guessing that any kind of um, scenario that could make uh, it possible to hold on to power in some form or other would be useful uh, in his mind, perhaps. Joanna, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. You've probably heard of Paul Whelan, the former U.S. Marine held in Russia on espionage charges, and or Michael Calvi, the American investor detained in Moscow accused of fraud. But what about Galen Grandstaff? My name is Galen Grandstaff. I teach for British Academic Center here in Moscow. I teach students of all levels, from young children through adults, and through various different levels of English. The 52-year-old American teacher was arrested in Russia in 2017 after he bought detergent online that contained substances banned in Russia. Prosecutors charged him with large-scale smuggling of psychotropic drugs. Joining us on the line is Mark Bennett, a journalist based in Moscow who's been following the story. Mark, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Good morning. First of all, can you tell us the backstory here? How is it that the Graylin Grandstaff ended up in detention? Um, on, in July 2017, he and his wife Anna were at home, basically relaxing. And when they got a call that there was um, a delivery from AliExpress, uh, he'd ordered some cleaning solvent, which he says that he'd, he'd used in America to clean motorbikes, basically. And he was wanted to use it in, in Russia for a homebrew alcohol device that he'd set up, which was getting, as I understand, a little bit rusty. He thought this cleaning, cleaning solvent would, would be ideal. So he ordered it from AliExpress. 
And alongside another order, as I understand, it wasn't even his main order. Like, it's something just popped up saying, and would you like this as well? And he recognized it. And he was like, well, I'll get that too. Because he he knew what it was and he realized he could use it. Anyway, so the AliExpress guy turns up, or who was supposed to be the AliExpress guy, turned up. They went to get delivery, but there was, um, there was no cleaning solvent in it. So I understand there was, there was a magazine of some type. And then seconds later, moments later, um, Russian, uh, customs police turned up and charged him with, Importing a substance um, which has been banned in Russia since 2000, since 2012. It turns out that the cleaning solvent, uh, unknown to him, as he says, uh, contains a chemical called gamma butylectrin, which has been used in, which is used in in, in clubs for, as a stimulant, and apparently a number of overdoses in the West. And obviously, he hasn't checked out the exact chemical um, contents of the cleaning solvent, so it was something of a shock. And then they charged him. And he had been in custody ever since until he was he was freed. And tell us the circumstances which under which he was he, he was freed this week. The judge basically sent the prosecution's case back to them, saying that it wasn't really strong enough, and that they needed to do some work on it if they wanted to get a conviction. Which, so I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a fairly big step for Ramstas. Um, but it doesn't mean that the case is over yet. It doesn't mean that he won't go to jail eventually. And um, I think we should remember as well that he's actually been in custody since July 2017. So I mean, even if they clear him now, he's already suffered a lot. He's been held in, in very, very grim conditions, especially for a person with Crohn's disease and arthritis. And he hasn't really had much help. Um, he's also been subject to um, attacks. He's been subject to attacks in during his detention. I spoke to his wife Anna, and she said that he told him that um, had actually he passed on a letter to Alexander. It's quite complicated. He passed on a letter to Alexander Shestun, who's a um, United Russia official who was arrested on fraud charges. He says a revenge for various various fallings out he had with with, with um, the Kremlin, basically. Uh, he met Shestun in prison, passed on a letter to Shestun, who's been passing on quite a few letters from different people and keeping the diary of his time in prison. And in this letter, he said that he's been targeted within the, crim- within the prison system because he's American. Uh, he said he was forced to strip naked, dance. He's been refused medical treatment. Basically, he's just had like, a really, really horrible time. And with, with it seems, the prison guards themselves and, and, and police, when they take him to various court hearings, basically... Him. Have we seen rights groups in in Russia or or the U.S. embassy get involved in his case? Is anyone advocating on his behalf? It seems to have gone a little bit under the radar, really. I mean, I'm surprised that more people didn't pick up on it. The U.S. embassy said it couldn't comment on, on private cases, so we don't know what they've been doing behind the scenes. But whatever they've been doing behind the scenes until recently, at least, it doesn't seem to have been very successful. Not by many rights groups. His case wasn't 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 very well publicized, which was surprising. I guess maybe because it's. Uh, Allegations of, of, of the banned chemical, you know, but that's that's in, in my in my opinion that's just ridiculous. Because uh, first off, um, the authorities said that he wanted to import it to use it as a kind of like dance drug at nightclubs. But once they realised that the ground staffs are like very clean living, um, it's not at all like a like typical uh, nightclub junkies or whatever. Uh, they said that he wanted to use it as a bodybuilding stimulant instead. So I mean, they kind of they couldn't even get the allegations straight. To, to, in the case of Michael Calvi, the, the U.S. investor who's been detained on fraud charges, or Paul Whelan, the former U.S. Marine who is detained uh, on charges of espionage, there's there's clearly some sort of political undertones to, to their detentions, to their cases. But can the same be said in the case for against uh, Grandstaff? What, what what could be the, motiv- the motivation behind the prosecutors here? Diff- difficult to say. I mean, it's extremely difficult to say. I mean, on the first glance, you wouldn't think that um, I mean, he's a former fireman. Basically, um, he's, he's, he's a former fireman from Kansas. 
He's been living in Russia since 2012. Uh, he barely speaks any Russian. He's obviously not involved with anything political at all. Uh, and he's, he's not high profile. So there would seem to be no political capital in, in, in arresting him or charging him with anything or using him in any kind of like political intrigue. So we don't know, really. I mean, there's obviously just two, 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 two possibilities. One is that he's just become a victim of Russia's kind of um, blind, merciless criminal system where once you once you fall into it, it's very very hard to extract yourself from it. They, they don't like to acquit people. They don't like to let people go, which seems possibly the most likely. I mean, then maybe perhaps once he fell into the system when he was American, he started to get bad treatment because because of the relations between Russia and um, America aren't particularly very good right now. There's also the possibility, of course, which which I think is less likely, that he is being used in some kind of political way, some kind of revenge for the amount of Russians who have been charged in, in America with various things. Uh, as I said, I think it's more likely he just fell into the system and has just been very, very unfortunate. What are the possible outcomes here? How do you how do you see this case uh, playing out? Well, obviously, we would hope that he gets gets released because I mean, it seems beyond the realms of possibility that he, he would have he would have deliberately imported a banned chemical and then somehow tried to extract that chemical from a cleaning solvent to make it into a bodybuilding solvent. I mean, it's just, that's just too bizarre to be true. I mean, I know the world is a strange place, but I can't believe that someone would do that. You know? um, so. It's people are very rarely acquitted in Russian courts, as in the judge says, you're not guilty, sorry, we were wrong. So I, mean, I think that's also an unlikely outcome as well. But given the fact that he's not, he'd served, well, he'd served, he'd been in, in, in the Russian um, detention facility since July 2017 until March 2019, um, it's quite likely that um, he could just get, he could come up just, this isn't the right word, but he could get a sentence which would already cover the time that he's been in custody and um, he could go free. Mark, thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us about the case today. Thank you. And to finish off, last year's World Cup hosted by Russia got sustained media coverage for months on end, and hundreds of thousands of foreign fans flocked to cities across the country for the football tournament. But another major sporting event in Russia has been largely overlooked this week. The Siberian city of Krasnoyarsk has been hosting the first ever national slapping championships. Now, the event is pretty much what it sounds like. Men standing across from each other, taking turns to slap each other in the face until one gives up or passes out. No dodging allowed. And all for 30,000 rubles or about $466. The competition was won by a local tank of a man named Vasily Palmieni, or Vasily Dumpling, as his name might translate. I'm sure I speak for all of our listeners when I wish him every success for the future. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. And head over to the Moscow Times website to read more about Kazakhstan, Galen Grandstaff, and of course, slapping. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer, and thank you very much to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. (laughs) 